Welcome, and we're continuing our conversation on theology and race. I want to welcome you to part two. So if you haven't seen part one, I would encourage you to go back and view that on whatever website, social media that you're viewing part two. I'd like to again welcome our panel and our guests. We have with us today Dr. Timothy C. Tennant, the president of Asbury Theological Seminary, Dr. Ruth Ann Reese, Dr. Bill Arnold, and Dr. Craig Keener, all outstanding theological minds that are guiding us as we navigate our way through current events. So I want to pick up where we left off with part two, or part one. How does our view of God begin to inform how we view scripture, how we read scripture, and then how we act, uh, our actions. Talk, let's talk a little bit, and how do those experiences, both good and bad, start to inform uh, how we view God and our actions? Let's talk a little bit about that. So I think in part one, we set up a series of frameworks that we could use to approach scripture. And we talked about the image of God, we talked about love of God and love of neighbor, we talked about justice, right? These, all these different kinds of frameworks. Um, and ultimately, there's a piece of understanding that God ultimately desires relationship with his creation, all of it, all the people he's created, the world he's created. He wants to be in right relationship with that. And he's made that relationship available to us through the work of Jesus Christ. And, and that is, is the truth of the gospel, right? So we affirm that Jesus lived and died and was buried and was resurrected and has ascended into the presence of God. And that is the good news. Now, having said that, for, for me, and here I just speak personally out of my experience for a moment, as I have come to read and know and learn from African-American scholars and theologians, my understanding of some of the things in the New Testament and in the Bible have shifted a little bit. And so, for example, I recently have been reading a book, it's called Strangers from Home, and it's um, about the way in which when you are a minority in a particular culture, you often have to know two languages. You have to know the language and function and the way the world works as a majority person. And then you have your language that you speak with your minority folks. And it's only privileged people like Bill who get to get invited into that minority um, context where someone will take you around and educate you about what it looks like to actually be a member of this minority group. Well, when we start to read in that way with a lens of like, I wonder if there's a majority minority thing going on in scripture. And we start to realize, especially in the first century, that the church was a minority group, a little tiny minority group in a large majority culture. And it's functioning with its own language, its own meaning, its own way of affirming things. So when we see the language of grace and salvation and good news, this is language that people in the majority culture used. It wasn't new words that Christians made up. 
And indeed, what they did, though, was that language became imbued with meaning that was distinctive to the Christian church. And that's one example of how like understanding majority minority relationships and how they function can also help us hermeneutically um, approach scripture in particular kinds of ways. So that's just one example that I might talk about. I had the experience within that your, your comment reminded me when I was in Edinburgh, I had a, uh, a Bible study that I helped lead and um, there was probably eight to 10 of us in Bible study and nobody was from the same country in fact, there were probably four different continents present at the Bible study. And uh, part of the way it worked was basically asking questions of the text, kind of an inductive uh, kind of Bible study. Well, I was amazed at the questions that they ask of the text. And so in some ways, if theology is our, you know, how we ask questions of the text, then of course, obviously the questions become determinative in terms of how we think about what are the kinds of things Christ, uh, the Bible should or should not weigh in on? And so I found just endless uh, insights to that point because uh, in the part one, all of you mentioned, all of us mentioned that we were ourselves, our journey was to be formed by relational experiences we had. And I think uh, I was just yesterday, I spent an hour with Dr. Gray uh, down in Orlando campus, and uh, he made the comment that you know, reconciliation involves people that were once together that need to be brought back together. He said, but the problem is we've never worked together to begin with. So we, he doesn't even like the word reconciliation. And his point was that we have to first get to know each other first, and then we can come together because there was never a point we were together. And I think a lot of times, uh, a lot of the experience, the majority community is that we don't have any relationships. And so it's a, it's a real prime need because that relational dynamic is what gives us those perspectives that Ruth Ann mentioned and Bill and others, uh, uh, Dr. Keener in their, in their comments. I, I found, you know, the, the exegesis of the text, there, there are a lot of things I learned, but in terms of how I apply that exegesis, of the kind of questions that I, that I, I bring to the text, that's very much shaped by the contexts that, that I know. Um, Dr. Taub, was on the board of the first congregation with which I worked as a minister. Uh, Dr. Taub was a Jewish psychologist and he talked about how um, crossing, once you've crossed one cultural barrier, you begin to think more cross-culturally. That, that's really important for understanding scripture. And it is, it's also important for understanding the world around us. It wasn't until I became part of an African-American church and was living in the African-American community, but I began to think about, you know, I, I mean, I thought before, you know, um, crossing cultural barriers, dealing with racism, that's all important, but what does the Bible have to say about it? But once I was in a setting where it was up front, it was close at hand, that's when I started thinking about, whoa, I mean, it's all over the place here. Hmm. So I think maybe one of the things I want to add to what Craig is saying is that each one of us in this panel has talked about how we've had a personal relationship or a personal experience that has, has shaped us in a particular kind of way. But maybe some people who are listening to this presentation, maybe you don't have that opportunity. Maybe you live in an all-white place. Maybe you live in a place that um, you don't have the means or the resources to... Um, 
have that kind of experience that we're talking about. But one of the things I want to say is there are so many resources available, resources on the internet, resources, um, books, and things from libraries, and just all kinds of resources that mean you can take that journey, whether you have that personal relationship right now or not. And so I don't want people to think, what if I don't have a personal relationship or a set of relationships with African Americans? Does that mean that I can't make that journey um, to, to deeper understanding of the situation that's going on? And the answer is, we can all make that journey. And Dr. Reese, I think you make such a great point. So I think in our culture, this is my perspective, we're expected as African Americans to be able to traverse into a white community. But all of us live in places that have diverse communities. So I would want to pick up on the point you're making and of course we want to read, we want all resources, but to have the courage to walk into a place that's not like you. Even if you don't have a friend, Dr. Arnold, uh, who can help you go there, but to walk into an African-American church or to walk into a Latino church, uh, very much like Dr. Keener's experience of having been able to I doubt that you just woke up one day and say, I'm gonna go to this particular church. Um, <laughs> but you had the courage and the fortitude to say, I'm going someplace different. That makes me uncomfortable. Um, and so we, can, we all have those opportunities in the cities and the communities that we live in. So that's great, thank you. I'm gonna turn our conversation just a little bit uh, because these are questions that I've asked myself. When I look at current events, when I look at um, not just current events, but the many, many unjust deaths that have happened before these three and these events, one of the questions I ask myself is, what is the church's authority? Hmm. What is the church's posture? How does the church act. As Christians, what is it that we, that the scripture informs us that our behavior is to be when we come into situations like this? So I want to throw that question open and just really think through and talk about a little bit of what is the authority of scripture and the church's authority to speak into these types of issues um, that we're experiencing now. Well, I think I'll speak into that a little bit, Donna, and it's a complex answer for me because I'm grieving, uh, I think, a loss of the church to have any real influence in our culture on these issues uh, and for the church to have a wrong position on many of these things. So with the death of George Floyd especially, but as you mentioned, uh, Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Aubrey, there are so many things that this has brought forward for me about the church. We mentioned in the first part the, the role of the image of God. And I really want to come back to that because I think it being in the first chapter, the church itself has never fully grasped the significance, and I'm not sure any of us have grasped the significance. Ruth Ann in a moment ago was talking about relationship, God wanting to have a relationship with humanity. And I think of all the things that the image means, and of course lots have been written on that, 
It means that God wanted a relatable creature, a creature that's unlike the other creatures that God himself could relate to and have a relationship with. And that's really the foundation for the call of Abram in Genesis 12, which gives Israel its mission in the world to be a blessing for all nations. Those nations need to be blessed and can be blessed and can bless themselves in the name of Abram because they are made in the image of God. So that's the foundation of the mission of the church. That's the foundation of all of us as Christians. Uh, and so to see what happened in Minneapolis is to see the loss of a person made in the image of God and to see it at a, at a sort of a crux, where as Tim said earlier, you have all these horrible things coming together, personal sin and systemic sin all coming together in that one moment. So for me, it's, it's the church not being the church. And I think what pains me most about that is that the church tends to, in the U.S., the church tends to mirror simply the values of the culture. Uh, I know Dr. Tennant has said before, I've heard him say, and I, I love the way he's emphasized the vast inclusivity of the church universal. Around the world, there's no institution, and I'm stealing your thunder, Dr. Tennant. There's no institution anywhere in the world that is more inclusive, both in terms of gender and in terms of race, than the church. And I know that's the truth. You can look at our student body and see that it's true. But when you look at the U.S. church, as it's been famously said, the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. The U.S. church does not reflect that inclusivity. And I think what's happened is the church in the U.S. has simply reflected back upon the world the values, the sinful convictions that have led to this, this mess we're in. So the church is not being the church. And I don't really have answers here, Donna. This is just um, me responding to your question by admitting the pain that I feel about the church not being anything but a, a mirror upon the culture rather than a window into what life could be like. Uh, and this is, again, calling for a, another great revival, I think. It's the only hope in some ways that our culture has. You know, one more thing, I don't want to dominate, but i say one other thing about our tradition. The Wesleyan tradition, in its origins, was, as I think all of you know, strongly abolitionist. Our tradition was against slavery and the racism behind slavery. But in the early 19th century, in the 1820s, we can't be that much more specific than that, our traditions began to change. And in many ways, the institutional church that represented who we were as Wesleyans and Methodists began to reflect the culture so that you had lots of Methodists who were supportive of slavery, for example, <laughs> rather than being, again, uh, a window into another reality, simply mirroring what the culture was doing. And I, and I fear so much has happened since that 150 or 60 years that this is just another illustration in which the church is not really being the church at this moment. Yeah, let me pick up on that, Bill. That's a great segue. Because I, I also wanted to say about our tradition, since we're on that subject, that I think that one of the advantages the Wesleyan tradition has in terms of the understanding repentance is for us, repentance is not simply tied to justification, therefore something you look back on as a one-time event, that you repented and now you're a Christian, but repentance is ongoing because of sanctification, and therefore... In some ways, we have theological space in our tradition for uh, for ongoing repentance in the life of the church, 
which obviously we need. I, I love Sandy Richter's uh, definition of the church, where she says um, the church is the outpost of the new creation in Adam's world. You know, I love that vision that we we are to be the we are to be the sign of the new creation. And so I think, Bill, your point is so true that right now, especially compared to the, the, the civil rights movement in the 60s, the church's voice in many ways has been muted for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's not simply, it's, it's our, our faithlessness in many ways, uh, certainly, but it's also because of just the sheer uh, post-Christendom reality that we now, we're now in as a culture. And therefore, um, we have to embody something that will be a, a striking alternative to the culture, not simply mirror the culture, which, of course, the image of God is supposed to be the, the, the idea of an image, right, of reflecting. We should reflect a new creation. And I feel like in some ways, that's the very, one of the biggest challenges that we face as a church. You might, you might say, put it bluntly, we have to get our own house in order. We have to get our own house in order, rediscover the gospel afresh, and to uh, be a stunning alternative, because if the church, if we ourselves were to model racial reconciliation, hope, um, you know, uh, peace and grace and celebrating the other, et cetera, uh, and radical embrace, then of course the, the world would notice that, because this can't be solved in Washington, D.C. It can't be solved. It's not like a, another Civil Rights Act will solve this. The whole point is the Civil Rights Act of 64 and 68 uh, were important. We may need more laws. I'm not saying we shouldn't have more laws, but the point is, it, it's never enough. At the end of the day, it goes into the hearts of people, and the gospel has to intersect that. And that's something only the church can model and, and help proclaim to the world through our deeds and our lives. I think we have this sacred secular divide within the minds of a lot of Christians, too, in our culture, so that yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, how does that impact my, my work life? How does that impact how I treat people? How does it impact how whatever my particular vocation is impacts working for justice and so on? So, you know, many of us are part of the systems that perpetuate injustice or part of the systems that could be working for justice. And so we need to take those things into, into account, how we can make changes in the larger culture. At the same time, um, I want to echo what, what uh, my, my colleagues have said, um, and that is, it has to start with us. As, as, as God's children, we have to model what that should look like. And what we see in, in the New Testament again and again, and, and particularly highlighted for us in the book of Acts, is that the Spirit is what drives us that way. I mean, uh, Acts 1.8 and then Acts 2.17, all flesh, and then uh, Acts 8.29, uh, the Spirit says to Philip, go join yourself to this chariot. And the, we have the first Gentile Christian who happens to be black from Africa. Uh, and, then, and then in Acts uh, 10.19, it's the Spirit who says to Peter, go down, uh, I've sent these Gentiles to you. And in Acts 15, 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to impose circumcision on these Gentiles. So the Spirit was continually pushing God's people across these barriers. We need God's Spirit today. As, as Bill said, we need revival. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Luke, Luke uh, says in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, 
that if we if we ask for the Holy Spirit, he's, he's not going to give us a stone. He's going to give us the Holy Spirit. So let's be concerted in prayer, concerted in prayer about the issues of racism and injustice, and concerted in prayer that God will empower us by his Spirit to speak into these issues and, and to renew the church, to live like the church, to, to love one another, as Ruth Ann said, to love one another as ourselves. One of the questions that I think that begs is, if we even bring it further down to Asbury, and not that we're running to action, but we start to say, or I start to even ask myself, Dr. Keener, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us as we take this reflective pause around the events that are happening in our nation? Um, what is the invitation from the Holy Spirit for us as a seminary at this time? We need to hear the voices that have been marginalized the first seminary I taught in was almost completely African-American. The second seminary I taught in was half African-American. Um, we, we have a smaller proportion. We, we have a much greater international proportion from many different cultures at Asbury, but a, a smaller African-American proportion, partly due to geographic demographics and so on. But we need to hear those voices and from those who, who can speak from their own experience. We need to invite our whole community to hear those voices. Just speaking uh, personally, you know, as president, I think um, one of the challenges that I, uh, we really have worked hard to recruit students across the spectrum, uh, but we have, because we have different geographic locations, uh, students self-select to come, you know, obviously if you're in Orlando campus, is majority uh, Hispanic, our campus in Memphis is majority African-American, et cetera. And so I think uh, that still mitigates against the relational capacities, which is part of the purpose of the whole thing, was to bring people together into a community. And so that's a, a challenge that we face. And I, I do think that it's interesting that all this happened right as we uh, celebrated Pentecost. I mean, I think it's very, it's, it's, to me, it was very powerful, the fact that this trauma happened uh, literally people burning things in the streets happen at the time when God himself sent fire and wind to blow us away and to, you know, the wind represents uh, God's breath. Ezekiel, they, you know, the breath is what brought these dead bones to life. The, the fire that led us in the wilderness. Can, can this fire of Pentecost lead us to a new place as a community? Can we have new conversations, new listening, new laments? And I, one of the things I, th I think Dr. Gray said to me yesterday, Rick Gray, I thought was very helpful. He said, you know, he's been Asbury for 25, 30 years or whatever. He said, but I, I, I do want to say that I believe Asbury is growing in its capacity to listen. And that's a, that's a compliment to us, I think, that we're trying to listen. I think before we try to make big plans, we want to listen, try to be thoughtful. And I think we're, we need to be a community of metanoia, a community of repentance that we might ask God to shape us and form us and do something inside of us and then maybe God can help us uh, across in larger venues. The other thing that I want to add is that whatever conversations that we're having, whatever listening that we're doing, whatever lamenting we're doing, 
cannot just be for a day. It can't be like, let's have a, let's have a prayer time in the chapel and get this done with. Right. It's been a hundred, 200 year, 400 year thing that's been going on in our culture in, in North America. And to have the hubris to think that we could deal with it mm. in, in a short time like mm. that would be um, really to ignore the African-American community and to ignore their, the generations of pain that have been their experience. And so there's a way in which um, we have to enter as, a, as an institution into a posture of humility before the people that we wish to serve. And once again, we, um, right, in so doing, we get the privilege of looking like Jesus because Jesus himself is the one who says, I came to serve. And so, you know, as we, this is a conversation that's bubbled up here and there in the 20 years that I've been at Asbury, but I think this is an opportunity for that conversation to become um, more intentional, more focused, and um, continue to have the opportunity to shape us into an institution that reflects um, the person of Jesus himself in terms of how we posture ourselves towards the African-American community. And uh, just building on all of this and, and agreeing with, with all of this, it's, it's not just having African-American and Asian-American and white American and, and other um, together, although that's gonna, that's gonna help people to, to hear one another, but we need, to, we need to deliberately make sure that the voices are heard by giving, giving space and, and requesting um, those voices be heard. And people can see that the people who are their friends, the people they love, the people they care about, actually, this is their real experience. And if we love these, our, our brothers and sisters, then we have to care about these experiences. Well, the reason I asked the question about what is what invitation is the Holy Spirit giving us? For me as an African-American, this feels different for the first time in a long time. I'm praying that we're open and that we're listening to the Holy Spirit and to each other that says, Lord, are you doing something different among us at this moment in this time where our nation has come to this point? And so if you had one last word to say to people that are struggling, there are a lot of people struggling with what to say. Do I say this? Am I afraid of offending someone? Uh, do I just stay silent as a Christian? So as we look at the body of Christ, as they struggle with where do I stand in times like this, what would you say to them from, again, a theological perspective based on scripture around the body of Christ? What would be your word to pastors and to people that are viewing the video? From a position of servanthood from a position of being brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Let's listen 
to what our brothers and sisters who are most affected by these crises are saying. And then if we don't know what else to say, let's amen them and add our support to what they're saying. You know, that, that's right. And I think I would add to, it's hard to say to improve on what Ruth Ann said earlier about uh, being a servant so that you look more like Jesus when you do this. Uh, I mean, I was thinking earlier about servanthood in Isaiah throughout the Old Testament, the nation Israel serving the, the other nations and how that fed, that feeds into the New Testament. And it's certainly true in terms of being, uh, raising sensibilities and listening and as Craig said, amening. If we don't have the voice, we can certainly amen those who do and say that uh, it's time for the church to be the church and to look out for those who are in pain and in suffering. And it is our mandate as a church to do so. And so I think that was maybe the closing comment I would give Donna. I think, especially for anyone who's watching who is a user of social media, the question I would be asking myself is, whose voice am I amplifying? Mm -hmm. And what, what message does that voice have? If it's a voice that is sowing division, if it's a voice that is mocking, if it's a voice that is, you get the picture. That's not of God. And if, if you're a Christian and you're using social media, you should be amplifying the things of God. And those things look like the things we've been talking about. They look like love. They look like justice. They look like service. They look like care for the vulnerable. They look like the image of God in every human being. If those are things that you're amplifying on social media, whether it's in your own words or by reposting or retweeting, then those are the things that speak of the, of the truth of who God is. And so that would be my question is, what is it that you're amplifying if you're a, a user of social media? I was going to say that um, uh, in our own tradition, we know that uh, God is calling us to be made perfect in love. And, the, 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 the Jews, the rabbis had the saying that, you know, that God is the repairer of the world and he repairs the world through love. And I believe that um, there's nothing, there's no more greater power in the world than the power of love. Demonstrating and embodying love to these communities and those that are hurting, whether it just be through a simple hug or in this case, a uh, social distance uh, thumbs up, <laughs> but that we understand. And um uh, I, the the Americans I've talked to in our circles uh, have all said to me that they've actually appreciated those who've called or written emails and expressed their concern and that they felt it, it was meaningful to them that they knew they were part of a solidarity of a community that has disproportionately suffered. And even though they weren't in Minneapolis, so they weren't in, you know, uh, uh, in our case, Louisville, uh, that they nevertheless understand they're part of a people that has been disproportionately uh, disenfranchised in our culture. And so we want to acknowledge that and pray that through the power of love and the gospel, we can come to a better day. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And on that note, we're going to have to end our discussion today. Friends, thank you for joining us for Community Conversations. 
as we take this journey through current events, it is my prayer, it is our prayer, that we journey together as a community called that brings glory and honor to God. I hope these conversations has helped you, as they have helped me, process through these and think about the way we're going to behave. I hope you've enjoyed these as much as I have. God bless you and keep you.